everyone. Welcome to We The Podcast podcast, hosted by Cody, Michael, and Colin. On this podcast, we discuss intellectual works, um, and today we'll be exploring some themes in We The Animals. But first, an important word from our sponsor. Running is not easy. That's why Grammarly can help. This sentence is grammatically correct, but it's wordy and hard to read. It undermines the reader's message and the word choice is bland. Grammarly's cutting-edge technology helps you craft compelling, understandable writing that makes an impact on your reader. Much better. Are you ready to give it a try? Installation is free and simple. Visit Grammarly.com today. Thank you, Grammarly. That's a very important word. I highly encourage all of you to use it. Now, into our discussion. Today, we're going to be discussing We the Animals, particularly a very important theme that we see in the book, and that's the idea of brotherhood and how it evolved throughout the book. So we have three brothers here, seven, nine, and ten years old, six at the beginning of the book, and we see their relationship change a lot from the beginning of the book to the end. We see them become a lot less friendly, and they sort of fall apart, and uh, the nine- and ten-year-old brother tend to get a little bit closer together against the seven-year-old brother. So why don't we take a look at the beginning of the book? Let's see what their relationship is like there. Cody, do you have a word on that? Yeah, so first, you, you, right, from, right from the first chapter of the book, we can see, uh, first chapter being, we wanted more, you can see them referred to as a group. It is always we, and it's, they're always very wild together. But the point is, they're always together. They're always doing these things together. Um, another scene is the, in the book is um, Never Never Time, where they're talking about their mother. And when their mother comes down, they're all doing something chaotic together. And it's always them as a unit. And at first, it's never any one of them individually. I definitely um, see that. And also, there's a few scenes where we see them having a lot of fun together. One that initially stands out to me is there's a scene at the beginning where they're playing with ketchup, and even their mom starts to join in, but they're just horsing around, they're having so much fun. Another one is uh, when their dad comes in, and they're horsing around, they're dancing around, and those are the, the very few moments that we see they're having fun with their parents. They're particularly having fun with each other. It's a very, it's a very close-knit group. Do you have an idea from that, Colin? We also see them bond over trauma, specifically them getting beaten by their father. It happens to them together, their, ba- their dad. Um, although sometimes you may focus on one boy, they all are able to bond in the fact that they're abused. Um, that often, trauma will often bring people together. Um, and we also see that reference to the scene of them horsing around with their dad, dancing with their dad. We hear the dad say phrases talking about like, you're not white, you're not Puerto Rican. Um, and so they're also able to bond in this racial ambiguity because, as we also see later in the book, how they're separate from, like, the white people. They're able to bond as they're the only people with this racial combination, I guess. Yeah, I definitely see that. Near though, in the, in the later in the book, they get a little bit further apart. There's still this aspect of we're one group because we're so different than everybody else. So I remember them referring to other white people as rednecks. So not that they were in a better living situation because they were living in just about the same places as them, maybe even worse, but... They always felt like a little bit more than just somebody who was pure in terms of their race and and um, and, and really, you know, has, has a concrete identity. And I think they even added the quote red like the rednecks or um, essentially the white people that were of the same social status viewed them as cool because of their racial ambiguity because it set them apart, which was interesting. And I think another thing that bonds them together is, as you, Colin, you mentioned that they're beat by their father and that bonds them together. However, I also believe neglect from their mother is another thing that bonds them together because their mother, as we know, works the graveyard shift, so she's not always present all the time. So the boys have to look out for themselves. Um, as well as this, there's another scene where a co-worker of their mother's, Linda, comes in and suddenly she kisses their mother. 
and this is a scene of deep intimacy um, and femininity. However, for the boys, this they recognize that there's someone else right there for their mother and providing something that they cannot, and that bonds them together. There's also evidence of their closeness, uh, particularly in reference to how their mother neglects them. If you remember, I believe in the first few chapters of the book, there's this one scene where the mother is making a cake at like a, you know at midnight for one of the for one of the sons, I believe Manny, the oldest son. And we see another son, uh, maybe the narrator, come in and say, it's not his birthday tomorrow, what are you doing? Now, Manny does get pissed, but the important part about that scene was that he was really pointing out that he knew a fact about the reader, about Manny, that not even his mother knew. So we really see that sort of bondness and how they really do care for each other. They know a lot about each other, um, even though they're, they're in this tough situation with their parents who don't necessarily focus in their lives that much. And similarly, on the topic of birthdays, the ma mother actually didn't remember the narrator's birthday himself. It was the boys who had to go into a room. Granted, she was sick, obviously, but the boys had to go into a room and tell her that it was his birthday, which, again, just shows they are so involved with their lives. They essentially take, take care of each other and spend more time with each other than their own parents. Um, again, just showing at the beginning of their book their closeness. And I think another important aspect of the boys is how they relate within their group and their kind of dynamic within their group. And so you have the two older boys, Manny and Joel, who are always, you know, competing against each other and they're always fighting. And we have our narrator, who is always the one who says himself he's there to keep the peace. And we see this in a scene where Manny finds a wiffle ball bat and, starts, and they start beating each other with it. And, and uh, our narrator is the one who has to stop that. And they're always they're always there for each other. They're always like protecting each other, even even when there's internal discourse in their group. But even right there, so that was pretty uh, you know pretty touching scene with the with the wiffle bat. But the, the point is that there's still a little bit of a distinction between the older two brothers and the younger brothers. So that even even though it was a nice you know sweet scene that the, that the little boy was was breaking up the fight, we start to see that distinction between the older boys and the younger boys, and that becomes larger and larger as we go into the book. So I want to kind of shift to the middle part of the book. So this is where we start sort of seeing a small turn in their relationship um, and, and seeing something change a little bit. So we're going to sort of shift to the end of the, through the book here. And one scene that stood out to me was the phone scene, where they were on the phone sort of imitating their parents. So either of you want to comment on that? Yeah, so this is in chapter called Talk to Me, um, whereas they, they, after the father leaves, he starts calling the house. And the boys, uh, being unable to stand the sound of the house, they leave, but they find an old phone on their adventures. And you know, they, they pretend to be their parents and they're calling each other. Um, and one important distinction is who is playing who. Uh, you see the two older boys, Manny and Joel, both playing the father, um, whereas the younger narrator is always the one playing the, playing the mom. And even when he tries to play the role of the father, it says, it says right there, he can't think of something to say. So obviously it's showing that kind of more masculine connection between the, first two, between the older two boys. That's been kind of prevalent uh, throughout the book. And that sort of feminine connection we have, uh, there is with the uh, younger narrator. You see that, Cody? And I think that that difference is seen even more at the end of the book. So we're gonna see it evolve more as an important feature. So I'm gonna table that discussion toward the end a little bit and we're gonna, and we're gonna see sort of how, how that difference is exploited in a way by the brothers. Um, but uh, in the meantime, Colin, do you have any other examples of the middle scene, like a little bit more of a transition between where they were at the beginning? Um, I guess I would say a large transition came in the wasn't no one to stop this chapter. And in the beginning, I guess middle of the chapter, you see the headbanger come in and immediately there is a split between the brothers. The older two brothers attempt to, I guess, look cool for this older figure, headbanger. 
um, and the younger brother, the narrator, feels somewhat left behind. But specifically at the end of the book, after sh being shown the tape, um, the narrator says, why won't you look at me, my brothers? Why won't you take my eyes? And I think this is really, um, I guess, evident of the shift between the two because the brothers, I guess the older two brothers, no longer are protecting. The younger brother is looking for this sense of protection from the brothers, and they're not providing it. And again, this just shows almost an abandonment of the younger brother, which we will see develop um, later in the book. And I think this brings up uh, one of the perfect points. Uh, towards the end of the relationship, we can start to see it fall apart. And it all happens uh, starting the chapter, the night I am made, the night everything sort of falls apart in the relationship. And the, 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 the cracks that already existed sh truly show themselves. And so after they've been drinking, they, they spend a night out, they spend a night out drinking. Um, then he starts talking to the narrator and he says, you know what she said to me the other day? Uh, she said you were capable of anything. She, she said you were so bright. And you know what else? She said that you were capable of destroying yourself. And then Joel mentions how they have to, they've been told by their parents that they have to protect the narrator, that the, that the parents themselves understand that the narrator is different. Not necessarily talking about the relationship, um, but how he needs to be protected by the older two brothers. And, and the older two brothers feel, um, feel a sense of like, spite against the younger brother for being, for being this special snowflake out of all of them. And they, start to, they finally start to express it this night. Um, and I think even, I think that scene is really where you see the breakage of the bond between the narrator and the older brothers. As, and even earlier in that scene, um, when they, you know, they had been drinking, etc. Um, the narrator says, I'm tired of this, this creeping around. Um, and later he goes, you, you, you are so fucking ignorant. You embarrass me. Did you know that? That you embarrass me? And I think this is really, this is a scene where the narrator is letting out, I guess, his anger at the brothers recently. Um, but these words are so, I guess, venomous. venomous. Um, and... Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely see that. It also, to me, it doesn't sound like that was the break of their bond. It sounds more like that was all the pent-up aggression that yes, they had. Yeah. And at that moment, it just sort of came out. So at this point, the, the, the guys, they, they get mad at, uh, you know, the, their parents and the, and the younger brother for for having to protect him all the time, but also he gets mad at them because he's seen them horsing around and being idiots for the last seven years, and now he's just gotten so mad that he had the opportunity to say it. And I think we sort of shifted to the end of the book here, and we're really, you know, we're, we're seeing everything come apart. We're seeing all, like, the happy moments kind of go to waste because we see that the real relationship was under, under the, the covers. We're seeing that it was a lot more angry than we thought before. And this is, comes out even more when we're talking about uh, the, the narrator. Or we actually first see that the narrator is gay, and we see that they don't relate to him in the same way anymore. And they cre it creates an even larger divide there. And I think it's important to mention, at the, okay, so now we've reached the end of the book, and you see the shift in the literary style. Um, you see in Deep Night, it's no longer we. It says they were gathered in the front room. Um, and I think even earlier in The Night I Am Made, this is the real change. Um, it explains the otherness felt by the, by the narrator. Um, and it says, so they were proud. Um, they weren't scared or dispossessed. They were possible. And then it switches, and me, look at me. See me there with them in the snow, both inside and outside of their understanding. Look at us, our last night together when we were brothers still. And so this again, 
I know I said earlier that it was the true breakage, but this just shows the otherness felt by the brother. Um, and although I think there was a large time gap between this and the last few chapters, um, but it just shows the brother is no longer playing, you know, dancing, beating up each other. Now it's them and I. I know you mentioned that was the final breakage, but I'd personally argue that the final breakage actually occurs um, later in Deep Night, not necessarily in the language, however, in what happens. Mm-hmm. And we see, the, we see the narrator finally get home and see the journal, and then he threatens his mother, he says, I'll kill you, and their dad lunches for the, for the boy, um, but the two brothers, and in the statement he says, my brothers, for the first time in their lives, restrained him. And before this, they never fought against their father. They'd never done anything like that before. So this is a very significant moment. They are, they're, they're like truly defending their brother. But I think the important part here is not that they're, def- that they're defending him from the father. It's what happens afterwards. Uh, the, the writer says that, but that restraint shifted before my eyes into an embrace. Somehow they were keeping him back. They were supporting him, holding, holding Pops upright, preventing him from sliding to the floor himself. And... All of, and this shows that they, instead of, instead of them necessarily holding back, yes, they are holding back the father, but at the same time, they're supporting him of, and seeing that, in seeing that this part of their family has kind of separated, because while he is, you know, one of the more important parts is he's separated from the brothers, he's also completely separated from the family, like, entirely. Yeah, so now it's just the family against him, whereas before it was the three brothers facing the trauma together, now he seems to be alone, and I think we see this materialize at the second to last chapter, so right before that final zookeeping paragraph. There's a line here, and the line is, the boy, referring to the, the, the narrator, previously narrator, knows that after the shock of this night, his brothers will treat each other formally, with dignity. If one accidentally throws snow in the other's direction, if one nicks the other's heel with his shovel, the guilty one will say, I'm sorry. Listen, and you will hear their whispers float up toward the house. I'm sorry, man, I'm sorry. And a moment later, the refrain. For nothing, brother. For nothing. So we really see something we didn't see throughout the entire book. We don't see them being cordial with each other. And we finally see that here. And it comes at a time when he's not welcome in the family anymore. So this is your, we said last straw a lot, but this is the materialization of that last straw. This is, this is where it really comes to a close. And the narrator has given up. You know, there's, there's no chance of him staying in the family. So he's figured, hey, if I can, you know, I at least made the other family, the rest of the family, happy here. So, uh, sort of approaching the end of the podcast here, Cody, Colin, uh, any, any last words? Um, I guess, I know, as you just said, we've said last straw, we've said final breakage, but I think the important thing to recap is that in the beginning, they were together, they were experiencing, there was that middle period where there was a bit of, like, slight abandonment or, like, lack of protection we talked about, but it was really the end where it accelerated and there was a number of events. It wasn't, each one was particular in that it chipped away at their relationship, and by the final event, we see them fully separated, but there was no, I guess, last straw. It was a combination of everything. Definitely see that. Well, thank you so much, guys. This is the We The Podcast podcast. Thank you for joining us, and have a good day.